Hi, friends, and welcome back to this week's episode of Fit Friends Happy Hour. Today, I'm excited to bring you another special guest expert interview. Felice is a registered dietitian who specializes in PCOS and is the lead dietitian at Alara, a telehealth company dedicated solely to those with the condition. What I love about Felice, and let's be real, all of our guests, is how she educates on insulin resistance and women's health from a very neutral, holistic, easy to understand approach that doesn't feel overwhelming. A little trigger warning here, there are some specific numbers that we discuss in this episode. So just a heads up, if that's something that you need to avoid for your mental health, noted, skip on, we've got tons of different episodes as well. This episode is for you regardless of whether or not you have PCOS. And I know that you will leave today feeling a little smarter about the topic of insulin resistance and just empowered with your health overall. And that's what we really want, isn't it? Welcome to Fit Friends Happy Hour, a podcast about all things nutrition, fitness, and life in your 20s and 30s, all from a non-diet lens. I'm your host, Katie Hake, and I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist and certified personal trainer. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people and experts from all walks of life about their relationship with food and their bodies. I'll also share my experience working with clients in my private practice to help women find food freedom and body confidence. I'm on a mission to help you stop quantifying and start living. Learn to stop measuring your success by the scale and find your fears. Felice, welcome to the podcast. So happy to have you. I am so happy to be here. Thank you. There's so much that I feel like we are going to, that we need to, that we I'm excited to talk about today. So let's just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, you know, how you became a dietitian. I always love to hear, and I think listeners love to hear, you know, what is your story personally with food, with movement, with your body, especially how you got here? Yeah, definitely. So no real fancy story here. I was simply interested in nutrition. I was previously an amateur boxer. <laughs> so not like professionally, it was amateur. That is and, so fun. Like you would go and hit bags or like wraps or what, all of it? And some people, some people. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. But so with that, I mean, there's a big like weight class, weight management sort of piece there. Obviously, nutrition is important for any athlete. And I kind of learned through that whole process, um, that whole sport, that I was not built to be kind of like a thinner, smaller bodied person. So I kind of entered my whole nutrition career knowing, okay, there's no one size fits all. I mean, I could take a look at my family, especially my mom and my sister were Italian and Cuban. And we fit the body stereotypes, mm. being a little bit curvier, soft, you know, very sturdy. <laughs> I love the, I love those descriptors. Yeah. <laughs> and I found like, going back to boxing, when I would be cutting weight for boxing, once I kind of entered the healthy BMI zone, I would lose my period. So it was this very clear indicator that like, this is not, you know, as I said, this is not a one size fits all. Not everybody's healthy in the middle of the BMI zone. Can I, can I pause you right there? Yeah. 
because I'm interested about your story specifically, right? That's probably unique. I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, if there's a ton of females specifically in that sport and with it being weight focused, right? You had weight classes and there's very much reasoning behind that, right? The competitiveness. How did that impact? Like, did you have a healthy relationship with cutting weight or was it disordered or are you getting Um, there? (laughs) (laughs) No, I was not getting there, but yes, I would say to a certain extent, it was very disordered. It was very restrictive. And I think especially at that time in my life too, the people that I was surrounding myself with, like personally outside of the sport were also like, they had eating disorders Mm -hmm. and all of that was normalized. Like never did I have, you know, a formal diagnosis of an eating disorder or anything like that. And, and also, I mean, I let myself gain weight in between sort of those cuts, but it was certainly restrictive. It was extraordinarily unhealthy. It was very upsetting to feel like, why can't I just be this normal, healthy weight? Like why to box people, my height and generally do I need to lose like 20, 30 pounds. Wow. So a significant, I mean, a significant weight loss, not just a yeah, few pounds I mean, of water weight. Yeah. For like my matches, it was usually like 15, 15 ish pounds that I'd have to lose. But like, if I wanted to be people with people mm-hmm. as short as me, I'm five foot one, mm-hmm. I would need to be losing a lot more weight, but I held my own. I did pretty well, but I mean, it was clear, like my endurance suffered. I didn't feel good. I remember I'd like be falling asleep during class, like clearly extraordinary fatigue and just extreme hunger. And, but there was also this relationship with my body where it was like, well, I don't understand why my body can't conform to these things that are supposed to be healthy. And what I had perceived as being healthy, you know, like being a certain weight, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I thought was the best indicator of health. So it was, you know, just a very cloudy perspective on health that I had back then for sure. Yeah. I think many listeners can probably relate to that too, Of right? Because this podcast is called Fit Friends Happy Hour, right? So a <laughs> lot of people fall into fitness or fall into sport for you know the benefits of it, right? There's so mm-hmm. much joy that maybe it brought them at some point in their life. But then for many people, there's this term where it's the disordered piece of it, specifically around weight, around behaviors, becomes too much or it becomes, it becomes normalized. And then you get out of that thing and it's like, hold on, this doesn't feel good anymore. Absolutely. And if I look back to like how much I was eating while I was training, it was like a thousand calories or less a day and like hours doing really hard workouts. So clearly not sustainable. (laughs) And I, you know, went on to my undergraduate studies in nutrition And towards the end of my undergrad, I learned about intuitive eating. So that became, you know, something that I had in my toolbox. I hadn't necessarily fully adopted it, but I certainly appreciated it, understood it, all of that good stuff. And it was really as I was about to go into my master's program of a master's in clinical nutrition, where unbeknownst to me, my PCOS journey would start. And I would gain like 40-ish pounds in the course of a year. And slowly my cycles would get further and further apart until they were like non-existent. And I finally got the diagnosis of PCOS. And I realized I can't 
continue like treating my body the way that I have in the past. I can't continue relying on counting calories or intentional weight loss, even if it's slow and gentle and all of those like rosy kind sounding things. It wasn't going to work for my body. I was always going to eventually gain that weight back. And it was only going to make the inflammation and the symptoms of the condition so much worse. So I really had to like accept fully at that point, I'm either all in or I'm all out on intuitive eating and mindful eating. Um, I'm either going to fully trust my body and take it where it tells me, or I'm going to get stuck in the cycle of dieting over and over until I'm like 80 and on my deathbed (laughs) and all of that. And I didn't want that. I just wanted to be happy and live a long life. So a long and healthy life too. So intuitive eating was the easy decision for me at that point. Wow. It sounds like you're really at a fork in the road. And that's interesting to hear because I feel like for many women and many clients that, you know, we work with takes them a while to get to that standpoint. So for you, was it really after that diagnosis? Like how soon after was it that you kind of decided, okay, I'm going all in, or was it, if you're like, was it, it was a little longer <laughs> than it sounds. No, I would say that it was, Well, you know what? It's hard for me to tell because I feel like what was probably just days or weeks felt like months (laughs) when I was first diagnosed. It was very devastating to me. I had just gotten engaged. I, you know, knew enough about the condition to know that it came with fertility struggles and Mm -hmm. these higher risks of chronic disease, whether it's type two diabetes or cardiovascular disease, stroke. And I think I was also in a mindset where like, I couldn't wrap my head around not blaming the individual for developing those chronic diseases, like thinking that it's completely your fault if you Mm. develop, you know, a chronic disease. And so I was just going through like all of these emotions and just fully feeling like betrayed by my body. Like, how could I, somebody who was working so hard to take care of myself, have this condition that's going to probably lead to these other conditions? And on top of that, I might not be able to have kids or this or that. It was just like a roller coaster of emotions. And it took me a little bit to, I would say, come to terms with focusing (laughs) on the things that I can control. And I'm happy to, you know, lifestyle, just healthy, happy lifestyle. And then also figure out from there how I was going to treat this condition for myself and how beginning that conversation with my doctor. And luckily, I have a very perceptive healthcare provider or my OBGYN is uh, very perceptive. And we just decided we're going to try lifestyle approaches first and sort of go from there. Did you know anybody in your friends or family members who had PCOS? Or when you got that diagnosis, did did you get much information or was it straight to Dr. Google? What is this? What do I do about it? So the funny thing is I actually received the diagnosis from a voicemail message, which I feel uh, like really upset about still to this day. Yes. Um, it's not I, like my photos. I can't even think of the last time I got a voicemail for something <laughs> like that. Like it's not a spam call. Like that is, oh my gosh, it's frustrating. Yeah. yeah. And it was something that like, my doctor didn't even tell me that she was testing for. So I didn't know. Mm. She was just like, I'm running these tests. We'll see what comes up. I'll give you a phone call. And then it was like a random 
nurse or assistant or somebody at the practice who I didn't even know leaving this like very cold, what felt cold. I mean, they were doing their best, but what felt cold to me message with this diagnosis and like, I have so many questions and now (laughs) I don't even have a real human on the phone. Oh my gosh. But somewhat luckily, I mean, I mentioned I was in grad school. I was like maybe a month into grad school. And when I had listened to this voicemail message, I remember it was right before my statistics course started or whatever it was. And another student who was sitting next to me, who I somewhat knew, I mean, I'd been in the program for a month said, Oh, I have PCOS. Like, wow. let me tell you, like, everything's going to be okay. And oh, I have it and it's heart. fine. I know. And I was like, what lucky, like happenstance that this person yeah. is sitting next to me. Right. Uh. And so that like kind of calmed me down for a second <laughs> until I started Googling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I was like, my life is over. I really felt that way. And I remember just like crying in public at dinner that night and just mm-hmm. so many negative feelings. Like I really felt like all of a sudden going from this healthy, normal person to something that I knew nothing about, even though one in 10 women have this condition, I felt so alone. Did you feel, especially studying nutrition, like that's part of my story too, is like feeling like this failure. I don't have, I was never diagnosed with a certain condition, but just in general, like when your body feels like it's failing you, I feel like there's this added pressure of, but I'm a health professional. Like, (laughs) how did I not know? How did I not do all these things? Right. And kind of Mm -hmm. this like extra layer of almost shame of all of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that one of the first things that became apparent to me is that there's a group of people that will say that weight gain causes PCOS and that like insulin resistance causes PCOS and that all of these things cause PCOS that really don't. PCOS is just a condition that comes about from a mix of your genetics and environment and stress and all of that sort of stuff. And kind of going back to what I was saying about being in sort of like that patient blaming mindset, I was like, oh my goodness, (laughs) I just, I have this condition and it might be my fault. And I was doing all of these things, quote unquote, right. So I don't get it. And it really, it was just, I'm so grateful that I've had this experience for many reasons, but really in particular, because it taught me that you know every condition is really a mixture of those things and that there's a lot that you can do via lifestyle for sure but there's a lot that you can't and ultimately i think that we're all just trying to do our best mm-hmm. that we're all doing the best with the knowledge that we have with the lifestyles that we live and everybody's just honestly dealt a different hand of cards and it's up to us as individuals to navigate that and up to me as a health professional to help other people navigate that in like the kindest, most realistic, sustainable way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, so beautifully spoken and, and so much truth behind everything that you're saying. So <laughs> how, okay. So you, you had this diagnosis, you came to terms, graduated from grad school. Tell us kind of about how you got into, was that right away clear to you that you wanted to work with women with PCOS or what was kind of the next step in your journey? Yeah. So while I was in grad school, I decided that I was going to do some research and do like a formal thesis. So I (laughs) kind of learning about this condition, thought it would be 
best to kind of merge my personal life and my academic life. <laughs> and so my thesis ended up being on nutrition and counseling approaches for polycystic ovarian syndrome. Oh, wow. And so, you know, I really dove head in there. I graduated, went on to just work a typical like clinical job as a dietitian. And then I heard of Alara, reached out and kind of by chance, you know, landed this amazing role as lead dietitian at the company. And, you know, in that time I'd taken courses on PCOS and continued to learn about the condition and all of that. But really that's where like my career in PCOS took off. Wow. I love that. It makes me so happy too, just when people's personal life and their profession where they kind of meet because it's it's clear that you're passionate about what you do. And it, I think it just adds more, more fuel to your fire kind of behind your why. So talk to us, you mentioned earlier about insulin resistance. And I want to focus on that for a little bit because I feel like that's such a buzz word mm-hmm. that we're seeing. Diet culture is telling you that you have to be worried <laughs> about this, right? And there's so many things. So can you tell our audience, educate us a little bit about, you know, what is insulin resistance? Why does it matter? How does PCOS get interwoven to it? And especially when talking about like that weight gain piece as well. Yeah. So insulin resistance is basically your, your body's cells become more and more resistant to the hormone insulin. And insulin is sort of this like messenger that comes into contact with your cells and says, Hey, there's some glucose available here in the blood, accept it, take it out of circulation and use it for your own sort of energy and processes. So when you become insulin resistant, that means that your cells need more and more and more insulin to finally accept that glucose and use it. So eventually that can turn into type two diabetes. If you, if your insulin resistance continues to get worse, But the reason that it's connected with PCOS is in part, it shares a lot of the same genes. So if we look at male relatives to people who have PCOS, they have a significantly higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And I think the the other piece of the connection is best explained with a little bit of an explanation about the diagnosis of PCOS. Yeah, please. Yeah. So PCOS is diagnosed um, using what's called the Rotterdam criteria. So you need two out of three criteria to get the diagnosis. One is a missing or irregular cycle. Two is polycystic ovaries, hence the name. So they're little eggs that get kind of trapped in the ovary, never get released, and they start to accumulate some fluid and gain a cyst-like appearance. And then the third one is elevated androgens. So that's like testosterone or DHEA sulfate, basically male male type hormones. And those feed into a lot of the other symptoms of PCOS. But insulin resistance in particular seems to drive all of these different like pathways of inflammation in the body. So they turn on a lot of these genes and a lot of these other sort of signaling pathways that then make inflammation worse in your body that then worsen PCOS symptoms. And we see a very close relationship between insulin resistance and increased androgens. So almost always when somebody's more insulin resistant, their testosterone levels are also going to be going up. Mm-hmm. What talk to it? Cause you mentioned too, that there's, that there is still a 
I don't know what we call it, not a body of research, a body of people <laughs> that believe that weight, weight gain causes PCOS. Can you dispel oh. some of those myths or maybe your opinion, whatever we, everybody listening knows what side we fall on <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast, but go ahead. Yeah. So yeah. Insulin resistance is oftentimes tied to elevated weight. And if we just think about like when there's inflammation happening in the body, the body doesn't run as smoothly. And sometimes there is a little bit more weight gain. Like you'll, some people notice during stressful times in their life, you either fall into the group of people that gain a little bit of weight or lose a little bit of weight. Um, Very, very universally common. People with PCOS are just basically more sensitive to inflammation. So when they're experiencing inflammation, what whatever it's from, whether it's stress in their life, poor sleep, poor nutrition, poor exercise habits, they are more likely to experience insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is also tied to weight gain, not just because of that stress element, but because of the way that different cells in the body basically react to insulin resistance. Fat cells don't really become as insulin resistant. So your fat will continue to absorb that energy, that blood glucose, and they can continue to grow and operate properly. But our muscle cells, some of the other types of cells in our bodies don't really (laughs) listen to or respond Mm -hmm. to insulin as well. Mm -hmm. So you'll experience feelings of like fatigue or really low energy or maybe just intense cravings too. And all of those kind of feed into what's already driving insulin resistance, feed into not wanting to move or not having the energy to cook for yourself or whatever else it is. And it's just kind of this self-perpetuating cycle that has so many things that feed into it. And um, for many people does cause an increase in weight, but not for everybody. Not everybody with insulin resistance gains weight. Not everybody with PCOS gains weight. Everybody basically looks different and it affects everybody differently. Yeah. I think that's helpful to hear too. And I think just we could apply this to any condition, you know, out there, it's so common for the media to catch this like weight gain as a symptom, right? We look at it as it's a symptom of what's happening in the body and media or, you know, whoever will catch onto it and say it causes this or equals this, right? Mm -hmm. When you and I both know that correlation does not equal causation. So that that's really helpful to hear. I think for people listening, or if they're unsure, maybe there's just something going on in their body that they're, that just doesn't feel right. Even mm-hmm. if you haven't gained weight, if you're at a you know, air quotes, normal size body, <laughs> you can, you can still have health conditions regardless of the current weight that you're at. Absolutely. And I think it just goes to show that weight does not equal health. And even thinking about some of my sickest patients have been some of my thinnest patients. Mm -hmm. Like there's really not very much of a rhyme or reason on an individual basis. And it's important to remember when you're thinking about yourself as well. Like my weight tells me very little, (laughs) close to nothing about my health, but tells me a lot more is one, how I feel and two, what my labs say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can look at it as one piece of the puzzle that Mm -hmm. again, may or may not apply. So what about those who don't have PCOS? How does insulin resistance impact them? You know, is that something that they read in social media that they should be scared about or do they need to get tested? Right. Somebody listening to this. Yeah. So, I mean, insulin resistance is, as I mentioned, it's tied to type two 
diabetes down the line. It's also tied to heart disease, even if you don't have full-blown type 2 diabetes, being slightly insulin resistant can still make your body have an imbalance in the different types of cholesterol. And basically just chronic disease, it, it, it increases your risk of chronic disease. So, I mean, if you've noticed changes in your health, if you've noticed, I have experienced more cravings this year, or I've experienced worsened fatigue or whatever else, I would say that that is a, a good thing to get checked. But most of our yearly sort of panels, lab panels, like the CMP and CBC complete metabolic panel and complete blood count, those are very standard and those will capture some signs of insulin resistance. So if your blood glucose is elevated, which is captured Mm -hmm. in, um, in the CMP, then we will know that maybe we should do some further testing and figure out if you have insulin resistance, but it's not just like everybody needs to test all of these different things every Mm -hmm. single year, but your doctor might dig in a little bit deeper and choose to measure fasting insulin or hemoglobin A1C, which is basically an average blood sugar over the past three months. So there's some other things that are easily measured, but might not be necessary right off the bat, unless there's another indicator. Yeah. You mentioned cravings, right? And maybe somebody listening, they're kind of, what's the word? They're like on the fence with intuitive eating, or they kind of go back and forth. You know, they're still figuring out their journey. What advice would you, would you have to somebody who's maybe panicking? They're like, Oh no, she said more cravings. I'm having more cravings. Uh, (laughs) I'm feeling fatigued. You know, where do you see the crossover with that, with, you know, starting intuitive eating or exploring or getting rid of diet culture? Yeah, absolutely. So there's kind of two ways that I see cravings happen. One, it's either cravings because you have insulin resistance. And the reason that you have cravings with insulin resistance is because some of those body cells that I mentioned, like your muscle cells might be screaming, begging, (laughs) praying Mm -hmm. for more carbohydrate because they don't realize there's any because there isn't enough insulin for them to accept that glucose into the cell. So that might be one way that you're experiencing cravings. Another way is you might not be getting enough carbohydrate, period. Your body might literally not have enough carbohydrate to run all of the body processes and make you feel like you have enough energy throughout the day. So if you're experiencing them, I would say absolutely make sure that you're getting your labs tested. But if you're concerned about them because of intuitive eating, I would say, don't worry about it. Don't worry about going into intuitive eating with cravings. You aren't going to endlessly eat Oreos and ice cream. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And at like the very surface level, kind of like the the situation I threw out there is, have you ever been on vacation and like drank too much, ate too much and craved a salad at the end? You aren't going to go home and crave like more partying and (laughs) more like rich food. That doesn't happen. And in addition to that, Part of intuitive eating is figuring out how to eat in a way that makes you feel satisfied and holds you over and basically keeps you like full, satisfied, all of those things as long as you can. And if you have cravings where you're eating, let's say like cookies and chips or whatever, you're probably going to feel hungry within a couple of hours. And that's probably a good sign. Like, I didn't have a balanced meal, one that satiates me and makes me feel like I have energy and can tackle my day and all of that. You will feel the crash. And that's why it's just a matter of figuring out how to balance your cravings with protein, fat, fiber, whatever it is that's 
going to allow you to indulge and enjoy, but um, hopefully bring you a little bit more balance. So for somebody who considers themselves an intuitive eater, they're like, I've been here. I'm, I know I'm eating enough. I know I'm getting balance. I know, I know from my history and where I'm at and what's going on. Like I have all this information. I know that I'm getting adequate carbohydrates. So, but for somebody like them, who it sounds like maybe is experiencing cravings and just their body feels off. So maybe it's, Mm -hmm. it's on another level. So I think for people listening, look at it again as one piece of the puzzle and Mm -hmm. like the bigger picture of what's happening. Definitely. Yeah. So where do you find the majority of your clients getting stuck? Tell us a little bit more about like the work that you do specifically with individuals with PCOS. Yeah. So I feel like where they get stuck with PCOS treatment is very much intertwined with where they get stuck with like mindful nourishment or mindful or intuitive eating because at Alara, we use mindful and intuitive eating. And in particular, I feel like people are fine with the initial sort of swearing off dieting. Okay. I'm not going to count calories anymore. That's fine. Mm -hmm. I'm going to generally listen to like those very overt hunger and fullness signals. Like my stomach's growling, eat now my stomach's full, stop eating where they get stuck is diving anywhere (laughs) deeper than that, really. Mm -hmm. And I think to be, you know, more descriptive here, really trying to understand what are the early, early signs of hunger and fullness? Like, what is a signal that my body just needs more energy throughout the day? People really get stuck with, well, I wouldn't say stuck, but it takes a long time to figure out how to cope with your emotions kindly and how to really respect your body and respect everything else that it's telling you in terms of your emotional and mental environment. So I would say the most difficult part is certainly like the mental health aspect and just kind of undoing those Mm -hmm. 20, 30 years of damage that dieting has done or that quote unquote, hacking your hunger or hacking your metabolism or whatever else has done. So how do you help women specifically, right? Who've gotten this diagnosis? Maybe they've read on the internet that it's very much tied to their weight. What are some things that you tell them or help them to, to really put weight loss on the back burner as you're starting treatment? Yeah. That's so so tough as it is for people who (laughs) don't have a diagnosis, right? And then they read you know, even more that Mm -hmm. this diagnosis is associated with your weight. Like I imagine there's that much more fear of letting go of weight or this fear of continued weight gain, especially if they've already experienced significant weight gain. How do you help somebody through that? Yeah. So I feel like some of this is just by trying to help patients not feel overwhelmed because most people come in and they're like, I've read 5 billion things on the internet. They all say different things. All of it sort of makes sense, but none of it really makes sense. (laughs) And there's really this just terrible, terrible mess of information available, I guess. And none of it's really totally accurate. So the first thing is just kind of like weeding through whatever the big items are that they're concerned about, you know, kind of myth busting and really talking through with each individual and trying to understand what their dieting history really looked like. Like what is everything else that they've done? And clearly none of it has worked because you're here now sitting across from me. Mm-hmm. So let's figure out why. 
And through that, I mean, the consensus is basically unanimous. Dieting doesn't work, period. We, we've come to that decision together. And now it's just a matter of taking it a few steps at a time, picking just a couple of areas of their diet or their lifestyle or sort of, you know, mental health stress management that we can tackle at a time mm -hmm. and just make a plan with one, yeah, one step at a time, one foot in front of the other and setting the expectation that it's going to take some time. It's going to take many months. This is not a quick fix. Mm -hmm. And two, also setting the expectation that we, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with your weight. It could go up. It could go down. It could stay exactly the same. And it might do a little bit of all of the above <laughs> during the time that we're working together. But let's focus on how you feel. Like, let's focus on the things that a, we can control, like generally we can control how much water we drink in a day or getting in that extra serving of fruit or vegetables, but kind of letting go of the things that we can't. We can't wake up and choose to be 10 pounds lighter. We can't wake up and choose to have our work only take four hours of our life each day. So basically managing those sort of expectations so that people aren't so hard on themselves. And that's yeah. really what it comes down to. Like, I want everybody to have a good relationship with themselves and their body and be able to trust their bodies so that we can just choose to start making healthy decisions one step at a time. Mm, so good. Managing expectations one step at a time. I think maybe for somebody listening, if, if you're listening and you're feeling stuck, like go back there. What are your expectations? <laughs> what do you, did yeah. you expect to come out of it? You know, have you created this narrative in your head of what it's going to look like or how it should look like? And, and what's the reality? What can you control and how can you take one to two steps at a time? That's so helpful. I love that. So as we kind of wrap up, you know, I'd love to hear from your words, you know, in the work that you do and, you know, all the experience that you have, what does food freedom mean to you? So food freedom, I feel like is really just a piece of this whole intuitive eating or body love journey. Food freedom really just means like finally choosing the foods based on how they make you feel. And I feel like to really fully make all of the necessary choices for like authentic, optimal health, food freedom's necessary, not just body neutrality, but like really body positivity and loving yourself. Mm. and taking that step towards mindful eating or intuitive eating however it's necessary so food freedom is like a massive piece of the nutrition component but there's still a very big mental health component and really learning to love and accept your body so that there are no you know expectations when it comes to weight there's no expectations when it comes to anything else and you can really focus on what's realistic and um, what's going to make you feel good yeah focus on the feeling. Ah, oh, Felice, this has been so good. Tell us, first of all, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Alara and how they can work with you? Where do you like to hang out? Tell us how they can connect. Yeah. So Alara is a virtual care platform that matches patients with a medical provider, like a nurse practitioner or an OBGYN and a registered dietitian. We only treat women or people with PCOS. And we really focus on taking a behavior first and lifestyle approach, and then adding in supplements and medications where necessary. And 
part of the program are these 30-minute visits with each of your providers. So it's not those 10, 15-minute doctor's visits. It's longer. We have time to chat. And then on the dietitian end of things, we also are texting and messaging patients in between visits so that we can continue to progress with goals, so that we can answer any questions, and basically just be part of your support network and part of your care team. We also have a community space that is free for anybody to join at community.alarahealth.com. And it's really just a support area for all things PCOS and getting you connected with your quote unquote sisters out there. Mm -hmm. And then you can also join our full doctor and dietitian program just through going to alarahealth.com and checking your eligibility, joining the program there. And you can follow us on social media at Alara Health. And then for me personally, Felice, you can follow me at Flavors of Felice on social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook. And Which I love that. It's such a cute handle. <laughs> you know, I feel like either you love it or you hate or you hate <laughs> it, but but it is what it is. It's Flavors of Felice. Exactly. Love or hate, judge or joy, whatever. <laughs> exactly. Um, at Flavors of Felice. And then I do have a website, um, www.flavorsoffelice.com. So good. So many resources. We'll be sure to link to those in the show notes. And last question, because we love to ask this to our guests, just Tell us what is the best thing that's happened to you this week? You know, this is a really tough one for just good reasons. I feel like life is good. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's a good, good, tough. That's good. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, honestly, working with my patients, I've had a lot of patients this week who've been like ovulating and just getting really good signs of fertility back. And, you know, I wish I could shout them all out by name, but I'm just so proud of them. And all the hard work that, you know, of course goes into, helping these individuals get healthy. Oh, so good. So gratifying the work. Love it. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Felice. We appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fit Friends Happy Hour. If you liked this episode, don't forget to share it with a friend. You can subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Fit Friends Happy Hour. Talk to you next time.